Given some of the remaining difficulties associated with an annual wealth tax and the uncertainty surrounding some of its economic effect when we're talking about an annual wealth tax, um, well, there might be merit in reforming other taxes first, including in particular taxes on investment income um, and taxes on wealth transfers, so inheritance and gift taxes. These are taxes that play a really important role in reducing wealth inequality and um, they're far from used to their full potential in many countries. Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and this will be one of at least two episodes that we focus on wealth taxation. Not so long ago, we dealt with a wealth tax motion from the NDP in the House of Commons calling for an annual tax of 1% on assets over $20 million. There were challenges with the motion as it suggested that the revenue from a wealth tax could pay for tens of billions in new spending, whereas the Parliamentary Budget Office indicated their proposal would bring in $6 billion per year. But in principle, I like the idea of addressing extreme wealth inequality, and a wealth tax seems like an appropriate answer. I'd done some reading on the subject beforehand, but the benefit of the NDP motion is that it prompted a much deeper dive into the merits and challenges of wealth taxation. Included in that reading was a report from 2018, The Role and Design of Net Wealth Taxes in the OECD, and I'm joined in this episode by that report's author, Sarah Perret. She is a tax economist for the OECD, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development. She leads the annual report on tax policy reforms across all OECD countries, and she has published a number of reports on wealth taxation, including background work for the recent UK Wealth Tax Commission. Sarah, thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. First, I want to get to the rationale for a wealth tax. In the beginning of 2020, Oxfam noted that the world's 2,153 billionaires together have more wealth than 4.6 billion people combined. That's 60% of the world's population. The word obscene comes to mind. And then Canada's billionaires are now $37 billion richer since the start of the pandemic. So from the correspondence I receive in my inbox, and, and certainly when you look at the numbers, there seems to be a really strong case for tackling wealth inequality. Yeah, no, I, I think that's uh, that's absolutely true. And what's interesting, actually, is that we released a report at the OECD on wealth taxes back in 2018. And uh, when we released that report, actually, I mean, wealth inequality was was a topic, but wealth taxation as a response to it wasn't a very big topic. And it sort of reemerged as a topic of interest in, I would say, the last couple of years, really. And it reemerged as a topic because, as you said, there's all these numbers showing how high wealth inequality is. I would say another factor has also been that wealth inequality and wealth taxation have become also more central in the debate in the United States, and in particular as a result of the discussions in the U.S. Democratic primaries with the proposals from uh, Elizabeth Warren and from Bernie Sanders for wealth taxes. So we've seen a a renewed interest in in this area. I think the other reason why we're talking more and more about wealth inequality and wealth taxes, which is, you know, you've mentioned it, is, of course, in response to the COVID crisis, because the crisis is not only shed light on existing inequalities, but it's also exacerbated inequalities. And so we know that those who have suffered the most from the crisis and from lockdown measures have been primarily low-income households. And at the same time, we've seen that the very wealthy have become richer with uh, reports, and you've cited some, 
of the richest billionaires in the world seeing a considerable increase in the value of their wealth in 2020. And much of that is a consequence, as we know, of rising stock prices, which can be explained by the fact that some companies have experienced an increase in demand precisely due to the pandemic, like Amazon, for example, but also because central banks are injecting massive amounts of stimulus in the economy. And so I think in that context, there have been understandable calls for greater contributions from the wealthy. And I think that's also in a context where in the past three to four decades, what we've seen in general across OECD countries has been a decline in taxes on uh, very high incomes, but also on, on wealth and wealth transfers. So I think this is the broad context and the explanation as to why this has become a big, big topic. And it's interesting, the politics here in Canada, because we have certainly had larger conversations about income inequality over the years. But in your report, you note that wealth inequality is far greater than income inequality. Now, there is obviously, as you say, a much stronger interest in the idea of a wealth tax today and addressing that wealth inequality to the point that in our throne speech, we say the government is going to identify new measures to tackle extreme wealth inequality. While there is stronger interest in the idea of a wealth tax today, a wealth tax isn't a new idea. Have wealth taxes worked to date in reducing wealth inequality and generating the additional revenue we'd be looking for? Yeah, so that's a question that I get a lot. And it's true. I mean, wealth taxes are not a new, are not a new concept, are not a new tool. And in fact, back in 1990, there were 12 OECD countries that actually had annual wealth taxes. Um, and it's actually worth mentioning that all these countries were European countries. And now there are only three countries in the OECD that still have these annual wealth taxes. So Norway, Spain and Switzerland. And it's probably good to start by defining what wealth taxes are. A wealth tax is a tax on the net wealth that a person holds. So it's their assets minus their debts. And it's broad based in the sense that it's levied on all or on most types of assets, at least in theory. So that would include real estate, financial assets, but also things like vehicles, artwork, or intellectual property. So a broad based wealth tax, that's what it is. And also when we talk about wealth taxes here, we're talking about recurrent taxes. So taxes that are levied every year. And it's important because I think you also want to talk later about exceptional wealth taxes. But right now we're talking about wealth taxes that are levied every year. And if we look at experiences with wealth taxes across OECD countries, across the 12 countries that I, that I was talking about, we see that obviously experiences have varied, but there are a number of common issues that these countries have encountered with their wealth taxes. One of these issues is that tax bases, wealth tax bases, were often significantly narrowed by a variety of exemptions and reliefs. So for instance, for pension assets, for business assets, for primary residences and artwork and other types of assets. And part of these exemptions and reliefs were the result of successful lobbying, but others were granted for simplicity reasons or for fairness reasons or because we wanted to encourage entrepreneurship. But the result of that, of course, is that the revenues that have been collected from these taxes have typically been very low. So to give you an idea, in the countries with wealth taxes, generally the revenues from wealth taxes accounted for uh, less than 1% of total tax revenues. In addition to that, the, the provision of lots of exemptions and reliefs have made uh, wealth taxes more difficult to administer. 
and have also effectively reduced their progressivity and their redistributive effects. Another, I think, important difficulty, if we look back at OECD countries and their experiences with wealth taxes, is that wealth taxes in OECD countries have typically been levied on relatively low levels of wealth. So, for instance, in France, before France repealed its wealth tax in 2018, France had the highest tax exemption threshold. So individuals and households with a net wealth above 1.3 million euros were subject to the wealth tax. But in other countries, they had far lower thresholds. So that meant that wealth taxes were levied not just on the very rich, but also on part of the middle class. And that can create issues because a wealth tax is levied regardless of the returns that are generated by the assets that people hold. And so it's going to penalize those who have assets that don't generate high returns and could be regressive when the wealth tax applies to the middle class, which was the case in a number of OECD countries. Wealth taxes that are levied on, on moderate levels of wealth also increase uh, the risks of taxing people with illiquid wealth and little income to pay the tax. So the typical example is the old lady who owns a house and whose value has gone up considerably and is suddenly subject to the wealth tax but can't pay for it. And so obviously, if you have a wealth tax that's levied on low levels of wealth, you increase the chances of these situations happening. I would say one of the biggest challenges has been the need to value assets regularly. It can be very challenging for certain types of assets. Think about non-listed or closely held businesses or artwork or intellectual property. Like for instance, for closely held businesses, you can't assess stock prices or market values on a daily basis like you would for publicly traded companies. And the difficulty is not only to value these assets, but also to keep on updating these asset values every year. And then, of course, there have been difficulties in, in, in tracking wealth. It used to be relatively easy to evade wealth taxes by simply hiding your assets offshore and never reporting them to your tax authorities. And there is evidence that these types of offshoring practices were not only occurring, but that they were heavily concentrated among the wealthiest taxpayers. So people would indeed be subject to wealth taxes in their countries. So in terms of the design, we see that there were a number of practical issues. I could also touch upon, I think, the, the economic consequences of, of these taxes, which is what people are interested in, not just in, you know, was it feasible, you know, the administrative and the practical aspects, but often what we want to know is what have been the economic consequences of these taxes. And my answer is going to be disappointing because, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of evidence on that. The studies are, are lacking on this or, you know, very strong findings are lacking on this. And then there's an additional difficulty, which is we don't really know how strong the migration response is to wealth tax, but we don't even know what the real economic repercussions of such fiscal migration might be because you can have somebody changing their tax residence in response to a wealth tax, but they could continue investing in their home country. So we don't know what the final economic repercussions would be and have been. Even without a lot of economic evidence, these arguments, these economic arguments have been really widely used politically to justify repealing wealth taxes. Or opposing them. Certainly, I've heard the concern about capital flight in conversations here in Canada with respect to potential wealth taxation. In Canada, we had our parliamentary budget officer assess a proposal that was a 1% wealth tax on assets over $20 million. And there, our PBO had estimated that 
you'd look at annual revenues of five to $6 billion. There obviously would be more, but for the fact that people would arrange their affairs differently. But, but on that question of arranging affairs and, and tax avoidance, the way that these 12 countries design their wealth taxes, and then ultimately nine repealed their wealth taxes, there are political factors that may well have motivated the repeal. And then there are concerns about implementation that it wasn't doing the job that they were setting out to do it in the first place. While there may be some concerns that people have with wealth taxation in principle, the practical challenges are a little bit different. So when you point to exemptions, for example, that ate away at the effectiveness of a wealth tax, you could address that by avoiding those exemptions, though that may be politically challenging. You could look at the example of the older individual who doesn't have a great amount of income but has a great amount of wealth. You could certainly delay the collection of that. You know, you levy the tax, but you don't collect it until, say, their death or the disposition or realization of that wealth upon a sale. You could have very high thresholds, so the 1% over $20 million. You could exempt business assets, for example. So when we look at the design of the wealth tax, you've got Saez and Zuckman, who I think when you talk about the the renewal of a wealth tax conversation in the United States. And Elizabeth Warren is one example. She was drawing from economists, Saez and Zuckman. And so they've played a strong role, I think, in renewing this conversation. And their most recent work, they would address those EU examples. And they would say, yes, these EU countries have repealed their wealth taxes, but they weren't designed very well. And here are some ways we could design it better. Are you of the view that if we designed a wealth tax better that we that it could function effectively? I definitely think that there are things that could be done. And and you've you've touched upon many of these of, of these things to address the deficiencies I, I just talked about. And so you mentioned it, you know, we could ensure that tax bases are broad by limiting tax exemptions and reliefs. And when relief is provided typically for business assets, for example, it should be very clearly defined and conditional upon you know, very strict criteria. And you can see that from the proposals in the U.S., you could have wealth taxes that are levied on much, much higher levels of wealth. The idea being that what we really want to target is you know, extreme wealth levels, but also that would help minimize some of the administrative and compliance costs, given that simply fewer people would be subject to the tax. Would you worry about asset shifting that you've got lawyers in Canada who are paid $1,000 an hour alongside accountants to figure out how to minimize tax for very, very wealthy individuals? And they would say, well, these assets are easy to value, so don't hold these assets and shift to these assets, which are very difficult to value. Yeah, I think there's definitely, I mean, there's research in the United States showing that that would encourage asset shifting. But it's also what happens is a lot of the hard-to-value assets are owned by the very wealthy to begin with. Right. You know, private businesses or, or intellectual property. These are already assets that are predominantly held by the very wealthy. But yeah, it could encourage further, further asset shifting, potentially, for sure. On the question of capital flight, so yeah. it's always occurred to me the United States is best placed to levy a wealth tax in some respects and that they they tax based on citizenship and they can tax citizens regardless of, of where they earn their income and hold their wealth around the world. In Canada, we tax based on residency. And so if someone were simply to say, well, I'm now going to hold my wealth elsewhere or I'm going to be a resident of a different country, even though I maintain my Canadian citizenship, it may be easier to sort of expatriate that 
that wealth. Do you think that taxation based on citizenship would be an, uh, a necessity to a, an effective wealth tax? I don't think it would be a necessity. First of all, it would be a very far-reaching reform because taxing based on citizenship is an exception rather than the norm. So most countries tax based on residence. But indeed, having you know taxation tied to citizenship, as is the case for personal income tax in the U.S., and could be the case if the U.S. were ever to implement a wealth tax, it does make it harder to avoid the tax. You can't simply change your tax residence. You actually need to give up your citizenship. So it would make it harder, but you could still have people change their citizenship. They would be hit by some exit tax. But yes, it would make it harder. It would still be a very far-reaching reform. And again, this is sort of the the exception in the world. I take from your comments and your writing that you think wealth tax proposals could be much better designed than they have been traditionally in order to be effective. And you certainly agree that wealth inequality is a concern that needs to be addressed, but you are concerned still with any wealth tax proposal that that it would have knock-on concerns in terms of administration, but also it would have distortive effects as well, and that there are other measures that, that would be less distortive in addressing wealth inequality. But before moving to what those other measures might be, there are some countries out of the wake of this pandemic that are focused on one-time wealth taxes. And it does seem to me that a one-time wealth tax avoids a lot of the challenges that you've outlined so far in our conversation, but also in your paper. Yeah, no, that's um, that's that's true. I mean, a one-off wealth tax would be just fundamentally a very different measure compared to an annual wealth tax. And as you said, it would avoid a lot of the issues that an annual wealth tax could involve. But of course, on the other hand, the impact on inequality is likely to be much more limited. So it is a different type of tax in that sense. So the main characteristic of a one-off wealth tax is that it would be a one-time exceptional tax. And so individuals would only be taxed once based on their wealth. And the wealth would be assessed at a specific point in time, probably right when the reform is announced or right before. And that doesn't mean that people would necessarily have to pay the, the tax all at once. They could, you know, the tax could be paid in installments over several years. And again, it would be broad based and in terms of asset coverage, and it would probably target taxpayers above a certain threshold of net wealth. And one of the key properties of a one-off wealth tax is that it would be economically efficient. Because it would be based on wealth at a past point in time, a one-off wealth tax would not have disincentive effects. It wouldn't discourage people from saving or from working, for instance. That doesn't mean that they wouldn't affect behavior. For instance, you might want to work harder or save more to compensate for the fact that you've been subject to a one-off wealth tax, but it doesn't have discouraging effects like other taxes would. On the more practical side of things, it would be harder to avoid because, again, it would be taxed based on the assessment of your wealth at a past point in time. It would be harder for taxpayers to play around with the rules to try to minimize their tax burden. It would probably also, I mean, involve or allow for less time to lobby for preferential tax rules for this or that type of asset, which has been problematic for annual wealth taxes. So there's a lot of positive properties. And as you said, it's being discussed currently in, in a number of countries. The tricky part, though, is that it really needs to be credibly one-off, credibly exceptional. And there have been instances of taxes being introduced as one-off that were, in the end, maintained for longer than initially planned. That was the case of um, the solidarity tax in Germany, 
but also what was supposed to be the temporary reintroduction of the wealth tax in Spain after the global financial crisis, and it's still in place. One way that you could try to really present it credibly as a one-off tax would be to really directly link it to the COVID crisis and the financing or part of the financing of the government response, which is what Argentina just did. They introduced this exceptional tax on millionaires and directly linked it to financing the COVID response. So yeah, I mean, it does, it's a different instrument. It's more of a crisis response, I would say, than a long-term response. But yeah, it would be in the jargon, sort of economically efficient. One thing that it wouldn't do, though, is that, of course, it would be insensitive to subsequent changes in your wealth, say the value of your wealth suddenly declines, that wouldn't be taken into consideration. We had a a debate through a a motion in the House a little while ago on a, a wealth tax. It was a bit more convoluted than that and a bit of a challenge to support, but it did instigate some thinking and debate around wealth taxation. And As I've gone through your writing and others and the work of the UK Wealth Tax Commission, it would be very possible and realistic, I think, to say we're going to establish a one-time wealth tax in response to the pandemic. And we are, as a secondary measure, going to establish a commission or a working group within the auspices of finance or some independent working group to say we're going to look at additional tax measures that we're going to put on the table to address wealth inequality. It could well mean a future ongoing wealth tax, and that should be on the table, I do think. But in looking at a tax system and wanting to address wealth inequality, what should be on the table and and what would you want a decision maker like me to to be considering and and to be pursuing? Generally speaking, it's going to be country specific. But if we want to generalize a little bit, one possible approach would be that, you know, given some of the remaining difficulties associated with an annual wealth tax and the uncertainty surrounding some of its economic effect when we're talking about an annual wealth tax, well, there might be merit in reforming other taxes first, including in particular taxes on investment income and taxes on wealth transfers, so inheritance and gift taxes. These are taxes that play a really important role in reducing wealth inequality, and they're far from used to their full potential in many countries. So I would probably, you know, start maybe with that. Um, Taxes on investment income are really a key area. And and the reason for that is because, of course, the returns from wealth typically arise in the form of investment income. So dividends, capital gains, and interest income. At the very least, we would want people who own a lot of wealth in the forms of you know, shares of businesses to pay reasonable levels of tax when they receive dividends or when they realize capital gains. But in OECD countries in general, capital gains and dividend income tend to be taxed at lower effective tax rates, sometimes much lower effective tax rates than employment income. And this has the effect of reducing what we call horizontal equity because you have taxpayers with overall similar amounts of income, but that are going to be taxed very differently depending on their mix of capital and labor income. Having lower taxes on investment income is also going to undermine what we call vertical equity, which would require those who have the ability to pay more taxes to actually contribute more, because we know that investment income is concentrated in the hands of the wealthiest people. So lower tax rates on investment income can lead to lower effective tax rates on the wealthiest uh, people. Finally, in practice, having these lower tax rates on investment income encourages the wealthy to shift part of their remuneration from 
high tax labor income into low tax dividends or capital gains. So this is an area where definitely there's a lot to be done. And if you're interested in, in, in wealth inequality, I would, I would look at that. We've also done a lot of work at the OECD looking at the taxation of savings, household savings and investments, showing that it varies a lot across asset types and tends to be regressive. So there's a lot of room to reform investment income taxation, to increase effective tax rates and to introduce more progressivity. We're also doing uh, work on inheritance taxation at the moment, and we're going to release a report in the next few months. And we show that inheritance and gift taxes can actually be an important tool to reduce inequality and to increase the quality of opportunity. And there's a lot also that could be done to make sure that these taxes on inheritances and gifts play a bigger role in raising revenue and reducing inequality. Again, you know, broadening tax bases and removing the opportunities for tax avoidance to make sure that these taxes collect more revenue and, and just work better to ensure quality of opportunity. So I would say, you know, these are probably good taxes to start with, but it all really depends on what your final objective is, I would say. Do you want to raise more revenue from the rich? Yes. Or do you want, <laughs> I mean, that can be one goal. That's one goal that you want to reduce the pace of wealth accumulation and narrow wealth gaps, but over time, over generations, that could be a second goal. And that too, yeah. Or do you want to rapidly reduce the concentration of the current stock of wealth? I would say for the first two objectives, the first, the best approach is probably, you know, reforming taxes on investment income and taxes on gifts and inheritances. But if your goal as a country is to rapidly reduce the concentration of the current stock of wealth, because say inequality is extreme, it's not going to be easy to do that just with taxes on investment income and taxes on inheritances and gifts. And if that's your goal, then a wealth tax might be more effective. So ultimately, that's why I'm saying it really depends on the country and what, on what your end goal is. So, so yeah, if you really want to now reduce the concentration of wealth in your country, it's a different story. And, and, um, a wealth tax would have an immediate effect. So I wonder even there, I mean, obviously that does animate the conversation and that certainly animated the conversation in the United States where the concentration of wealth has really pernicious effects on their politics in a way that thankfully in Canada, we have a very strong regime of political financing and we avoid some of those those pitfalls at least. But it's hard to do even with a wealth tax because at a 1% over $20 million a year, you're not going to reduce the concentration of wealth to a very great degree. If the revenue generated by that wealth tax is $5.6 billion on an annual basis or, or, or somewhere slightly above that based on at least the PBO's projections, it will make a dent, but it's not really going to address it in as serious of a way as I think many people would want who are animated by that concern. I think everything should be on the table. I, I personally think you know wealth taxation in principle, makes a good amount of sense. I read the numbers at the outset. Just there is a there is an obscenity to just that concentration of wealth in our society. At the same time, as people don't have enough, so I think probably all of the factors that you have outlined are reasons to act. But I, I take your point that the different reasons militate towards different policy response. And I just I also want to add something on this. You know, I, I keep reading about the proponents of wealth taxes tend to present it as sort of a, a bit of a magic solution, but it's a wealth tax is definitely not a silver bullet. And you also need to look beyond tax policies because tax measures, including wealth tax, they only address inequality after the fact. 
But it's also important to look at the factors that have led to that level of inequality in the first place. And so I think we also need to think about instruments, maybe like competition policy, for instance, which might play a critical role in addressing the root causes of extreme wealth growth among the very wealthy. So even if you know you, you combine your tax instruments, but you would still need to look at other other tools as well. I think that's that's important. We have talked a little bit about capital flight risk and there are challenges to Canada or any individual country addressing wealth inequality in a really serious way because we live in a in a world where capital moves fairly easily across borders. We've looked at the same problem here in Canada as it relates to sort of the race to the bottom of, of taxation with you know Ireland as an example, as a haven for some of the big tech companies to reduce their tax burden, even though they're earning revenue generated in Canada, but paying taxes in Ireland as, an, as, as one example. And so in, in the recent throne speech in the fall, we committed to addressing that issue. I know that there's work underway at the OECD to address that issue as well. Walk me through the, the current work to address transparency issues and to find some global solutions to these global challenges. Because it does seem in the end, individual countries can push the agenda and can try to tackle the issue, but we really do need a global solution. That's critical, especially because we're talking about wealth and we're talking about financial assets. And, and the good news is that we're, we are far better equipped today to um, tax financial assets and financial income. And the reason for that is that we've um, made significant progress on adopting international tax transparency standards, which prevent offshore tax evasion. And this has been work led by, by the OECD. And so these tax transparency standards, broadly what they require is tax authorities to exchange information between each other on offshore accounts. And one of these standards in particular has been, I would say, and I think a lot of my colleagues working on this would agree that it's a game changer and it's called the automatic exchange of information. Maybe the easiest way to explain what it does is to give an example. So under um, the automatic exchange of information, if a taxpayer in Canada has a bank account in another country, a foreign country that's part of this automatic exchange of information, the bank in that foreign country will have to disclose financial account data to the tax authorities in that country. And then the tax authorities in that country will automatically transfer that information to tax authorities in Canada. And so the type of information that is being exchanged on these accounts is details about the account holder, but also of the financial account itself. And that means that if Canada, Canada doesn't need to request that information anymore from foreign tax administrations, it's just going to get it automatically. And to give you an idea of how significant this is, in 2019, there were um, 100 countries that exchanged information enabling their tax authorities to obtain data on 84 million financial accounts, covering assets with a total value of about 10 trillion euros. And so it's a lot of a lot of potential money, a lot of potential tax money there. And among the countries that are exchanging information, you have a, a lot of countries that were often used to hide assets offshore. So you can see why this is a real game changer that makes concealing assets offshore much more difficult today and makes the taxation of financial assets and financial income potentially much more effective. So that's why I think 
today is a good time to be thinking about, you know, the taxation of financial income, for instance, because it's in, in that sense, it's far less mobile than it used to be because we're much better, you know, we're better equipped to, to track it. So, yeah, so that's been really, a really critical project and, and um, big step forward. It's, it's another example of where if you want to have a bigger conversation about taxation on the way outside of this crisis, as some countries are doing, I actually think the UK, to their credit, is having really serious conversations. You participated in a in the UK Wealth Tax Commission, but they, they have a select committee that's looking at tax measures going forward outside of the pandemic in a way that we aren't having this active conversation as, as a parliament yet, I would say. The government has indicated they want to have some of this conversation, at least in relation to taxing extreme wealth inequality. We're going to close the stock option loophole. We're going to address taxation of big tech companies that are, as I say, earning revenue in Canada, but not paying taxes in Canada in quite the same way, but two fairly limited measures overall. And if we want to have that bigger picture conversation, potentially that one-time wealth tax and then other measures that could be looked at to make more permanent, an inheritance tax should be on the table. The idea of automatic exchange of information, but as, as one part of addressing tax avoidance and tax evasion in, in a much more aggressive way, makes a lot of sense to me as well. In the Canadian context, when you look at, we have no inheritance tax, we have probate taxation, but we don't have an inheritance tax. We have capital gains taxation of 50% of uh, capital gains is taxed as income. In that context, taking the lessons learned in a broader way from from what you've said, it, it does seem that if not a wealth tax, we have to strengthen those measures. Yeah, I think those are at least on you know partial inclusion of capital gains. And those to me seem more like uh, low hanging fruits in terms of where to start reforming. It doesn't mean that it's, you know, it would necessarily be if you address these reforms, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily enough. But I think you might want to start with that is the point from a practical perspective. You know, you might want to look at what you could do with your existing tax system. And the reality is, it seems I haven't looked at it in enough detail, obviously, but you mentioned a few areas that could be looked into. And I I think it's probably wise to start with that. For the existing taxes, it's definitely worth looking at what can be done. As you said at the outset, the conversation is a much more serious one today, but you were writing, and and in some ways we're analyzing these issues free of political interest, uh, which which is interesting to then come back to your report, which is not so very long ago, which is only a, a few years ago. But it, it certainly helped me as I, as I look at the reasons for, the reasons against, and, and some of the, the practical challenges. I would still love to see a more serious proposal. I've seen, I mean, the PBO is, is not the most comprehensive costing and most of the wealth tax proposals that I've seen in Canada are really not fleshed out in a very serious way. And I think to walk through design issues and to walk through the challenges that you raise, but also the, the positive reasons to have a wealth tax that you raise in your paper, having all of that considered in a really serious proposal in Canada would, would be helpful, I, I think, as far as the conversation going forward, but uh, but I, I really appreciate all of all of your work in writing. And if you do have suggestions going forward or or new work, you mentioned you've got work coming out on inheritance taxation and wealth transfers. I, I'm very interested. Please do send that along. The time has come, certainly in Canada, but I think around the world as well, 
for a more serious conversation about reforming, updating, and enhancing tax measures, and really reversing the course of the last number of decades, where we've seen taxes decrease, 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 and those who are wealthy and those who earn a great deal on an annual basis benefiting a great deal, well, too many people are left behind. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I'll definitely share, we have upcoming work on inheritance taxation, we're also going to do, but that's longer term work on, on investment income. So, uh, yeah, for sure. I'm, I'll be happy to, to share that with you. Well, thanks very much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks for joining me here at Uncommons. Now, my thinking has evolved a little bit, at least since my conversation with Sarah, and I'm in the final stages now of drafting a motion on the subject of wealth taxation. Sarah's analysis has been very helpful in my work on this, as has the UK Wealth Tax Commission report, which we referenced a couple of times in this episode. So I'll be joined for our second episode on wealth taxes by one of the co-authors of that report, Professor Arun Advani. So do look out for that. Leave a positive review if you like what we're doing, and do be in touch if you have ideas for future topics or guests. Until next time.